Ой, шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The usual two guests today. First is Faith Hillis, about the history of Russian and Ukrainian relations, historical narratives, and historical memory. Then I talk to Andrew Weiss on Putin's improvisations in eastern Ukraine. A word about this week's recording. The interviews are conducted through Skype, and sometimes the Skype gods aren't as generous with their bandwidth. My apologies for the choppiness of the sound and the overall quality of the recordings. My first guest is Faith Hillis. Faith is an assistant professor of Russian history at the University of Chicago. She is the author of Children of Rus, Right Bank Ukraine and the Invention of a Russian Nation. Her most recent article is Intimacy and and Antithopy, Ukrainian-Russian Relations in Historical Perspective, published in Kritika. You describe the relationship between Russia and Ukraine as a history of intimacy and antithopy. Uh, What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, what I mean by this, the first thing I want to convey is that the very first thing that one needs to understand about Ukrainian history is that it's it's incredibly complex, right? And there are these wonderful histories of multi-ethnic contact that people have written in the last several years that look at the relations between Jews, Poles, Ukrainians, Russians, Germans, all of this. Um, and so this is part of the greater landscape. But what I'm trying to do in this essay is to focus in on just one aspect of this great diversity diversity and complexity, namely this very complicated Russian-Ukrainian relationship. So what I mean when I talk about intimacy and antipathy is that, on the one hand, Ukraine is not really a periphery in Russian history. I argue that Ukraine is actually really at the center of everything important that's happened in Russian history. Um, Certainly, we could go back, and people do go back all the way to Rus. But I think we can uh, really begin in the early modern period thinking about the ways in which Ukraine and Ukrainians helped to imagine the Russian Empire. We can think about the way that Ukraine and Ukrainians helped to imagine Russian nationalist ideas in the 19th century, uh, the role that these populations played in forging the Soviet system as well. So this is the, the intimacy part, that Ukraine and Russia are difficult to uncouple in this way, and that Ukraine has played this very active role in defining what Russia is. The antipathy part is that at the same time that Ukraine has played this really constitutive role in Russian history, it's also, I argue, developed these very imaginative alternatives to Russian hegemony, be that imperial hegemony or Soviet hegemony. So again, one can go back all the way to the Cossacks and look at this dream of a you know, self-governing military society one can look at 19th century Ukrainian national ideas as a as a critique and a response to these Russian nationalist ideas that were also at play in Ukrainian space. And then perhaps most um, most relevant for the, the current context is this this history of antipathy that developed in, in World War Two where we had a um, a very aggressive and dramatic Ukrainian response to the Soviet war effort, um, the, the effort led by Bandera and, and other nationalist leaders to um, not only liberate Ukraine, but to really de- defeat and destroy the entire Soviet project. So what I'm trying to, to say with this formulation is that Ukrainian history and, and Ru- Ukraine's relationship with Russia is just incredibly complex. 
Well, we'll get into some of the more details of those things you put forward. And first is the idea of Ukraine playing a crucial role in the Russian imperial project. In, in what way? Right. So if we look back to the, the origins of the Russian Empire, the time of Peter the Great, um, we, we see all over this the stamp of what was then the Cossack Hetmanate. So this is essentially a self-governing um, entity that emerges from uh, wars between the Orthodox Cossacks and what was then Polish-Lithuanian territory in the in the 17th century. So this Cossack Hetmanate became really the center of the Orthodox world, uh, in part because of this Catholic heritage, ironically. You know, it was connected to Rome. It had this Jesuit influence. All of these men spoke Latin, were highly educated. And so this was a society that produced the men who created the modern Orthodox Church in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it also produced thinkers like Feofan Prokopovich, uh, who was essentially the ideologist of the autocracy as developed by Peter the Great. Um, so in the early modern period, it's Ukraine rather than Moscow that's really the center of the Orthodox educated world and therefore that helps to frame this this Russian imperial project. Yeah, it's interesting you point out in quite an irony in many ways, considering the 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 con the situation now in Ukraine, that Ukraine was a center of Russian nationalist agitation. Um, talk about that a bit. Right. So so this really begins in in the 19th century. And this is in part, I think, a uh, a result of this um, in incredibly, um, you know, literate, advanced society that we, we had in Ukraine. So the descendants of these these Cossack generals and then later these these elites from the Cossack Hetmanate, these men uh, who are uh, who hail from what we call left bank Ukraine. So the, the areas like Chernihiv um, today, um, these men were helped to formulate this notion of a Russian nation in the in the early and mid 19th century. And again, what, what this nation meant was very complicated because in many ways it was actually uh, based on their memory of their Cossack ancestors. You know, the, the battles that these Cossacks had engaged in against the Catholic world, their bravery. It was a very localist vision, a Ukrainian inflected vision in that in that way. Um, but this vision of a, of a Russian nation, of an Orthodox nation that was in battle against this Catholic uh, population that we also found in, in the territory of Ukraine, this vision was also very useful for the autocracy. And it was something that people like Pyotr Valuev, the, the Minister of Education under Nicholas I, really um, clung on to and tried to use as he promoted this idea of nationality, autocracy, orthodoxy. In other words, it was it was largely these um, men from the edge of the empire, these descendants of Hetmanate elites, who, who really forged the, um, the ideas and the vocabulary of, of Russian nationalism and what that would mean in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And how did this work alongside of a developing Ukrainian nationalism? Well, I argue in my, in my book, Children of Rus, that actually these two visions were very intimately inter twined. And in fact, in the early 19th century, it's it's actually quite difficult to 
contribute, uh, sorry, to, to, to juxtadistinguish what we would think of as Ukrainian nationalism and Russian nationalism. So a lot of the men who we, we often think of as the inventors of Ukrainian nationalism, these are men like Kostomarov, Maximovich, um, all of these men, even Shevchenko, these men are formulating a project of local specificity that, again, harkens back to this Cossack idea of freedom. But many of these men are also working in this sort of all-Russian, all-imperial context, once again, defining the, the, this nation um, as, a, as an orthodox nation, first and foremost, and as a nation that um, is defining itself against Poles and against Jews who also live in the area. So therefore, I argue it's, it's very difficult to disconnect these ideas until about um, until about 1860 or 1870, where we began to get this Ukrainian national idea that that really finally wholeheartedly rejects this greater um, all-Russian project in which many of these thinkers had also engaged. How did these uh, dueling nationalisms impact the development of Ukraine's historical narratives? Right. So I, I think one of the really interesting things about this complicated story is I'm trying to suggest that all of these different um, modes of thought are intertwined, right? It's, it's difficult, as I've said, to deconstruct to disentangle Russian and Ukrainian ideas. And we can even add that the, you know, Polish activists are also very important and influential in defining both of these national ideas. So this is all a big mush of nationalist activity with different activists drawing from different traditions and in fact learning from each other, even as they're fighting against each other. But very interestingly, in the 19th century, late 19th century, as we began to get these ideas developing into full-fledged political projects, um, this is the moment at which intellectuals on all sides of these debates come in and create these new histories that really exclude um, these instances of, of learning from each other, um, that really seek, seek to hide the ways in which these rival movements are interconnected, and that, that seek to begin to go back to the distant, distant past and, you know, to trace the past of their nations through all eternity in this straight and unbroken line when, in fact, these lines are, are very messy and entangled with other national traditions. And this really gains a lot of force, as, as you suggest, after World War II. Uh, how does this kind of, the, the traditions of kind of Ukraine's role in building the Soviet Union kind of go against the resistance of Ukrainians to Soviet hegemony. Right. So I argue in the essay that Ukraine had, had played a really central role in defining the Soviet experience, right? It's not only that a lot of the, the Bolshevik thinkers and the avant-garde artists who define the Bolshevik system hail from Ukraine or have Ukrainian roots. Uh, this is also the place, as Terry Martin has shown so effectively, where these affirmative active action techniques are first really tested and, and tried, developed in part by Ukrainian Bolshevik. Bolsheviks. So Ukraine is, is always central to the Bolshevik experience. At the same time, Ukraine is a, a, a center for anti-Bolshevik thought as well. Um, we see massive resistance coming from peasants in the, in the 1930s, and this is part of what helps to, uh, to bring about this, this horrible, well, the punishment from Stalin that re results in this horrible famine of 1932 and 33. And then we really see this anti-Soviet movement on Ukrainian territory coalescing, um, with the beginning of World War II. Now, this anti-Soviet agitation, this also has an older history. It, it begins in, um, in Western Ukraine today, which was then part of interwar Poland, um, in reaction both to the oppressive policies that the Polish state uh, used to um, destroy Ukrainian 
resistance, but also in, in reaction to that, that Ukrainian Bolshevism that I just talked about. So this movement, this sort of integral nationalism of Ukraine uh, begins in 1929. This is when the, the primary organization, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists is founded. And it's this organization that uh, takes World War II really as an opportunity to, to, to quote unquote, liberate Ukraine. Um, and this is a, a struggle that these actors define as, as liberation of Ukrainian lands, not only from Soviet rule, but there's also an element of um, ethnic cleansing in this. Uh, they talk about a Ukraine for Ukrainians. And so this also involves attacks against the, the Poles and the Jews who live in this territory. And what happens to this kind of more Ukrainian uh, historical narrative uh, during the Soviet period? Right. So after World War II, I, I suggest World War II is this complicated experience with Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians on both sides of this battle, you know, very convinced communists and, and very convinced anti-communists. So we have this, again, complicated, mushy experience of the war, these very conflicting narratives. After the war, they really harden into distinct historical memories. So on the one hand, we have the Soviet memory of the war that, that highlights uh, this moment of World War II as this moment of all Soviet sacrifice, um, not accidentally, as I point out, the men who, who preside over the creation of this post-war cult, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, were both active on this Ukrainian front in World War II. They were both commissars. Um, and of course, Brezhnev is a... Um, Sorry, Khrushchev is of um, Ukrainian origin, of course, has some, some Ukrainian background. Um, so this is not accidental. So Ukraine is, is a centerpiece of the Soviet war effort. Although sort of the specific, um, you know, specific Ukrainian sacrifices, the, the specifically Jewish nation of the Holocaust are also left out of this all Soviet war cult. Now then in, in what is now Western Ukraine um, is uh, Galicia, as, as we call it, around Lviv, we get a, a separate memory of the war that's nourished. And this is a memory of the war experience that really focuses on that integral nationalist movement that I, I spoke about before and celebrates it um, as a struggle for Ukrainian national liberation against the Soviet Union. So there's a way in which uh, this, this memory of the war also then begins to feed into these dissident movements that we see in the late Soviet period and dissident movements in Ukraine that take on a sort of um, explicitly nationalist tone, seeking to liberate Ukraine from this, this Soviet experiment. Once the Soviet Union collapses and, and Ukraine gains its independence, you point out that there's actually an effort to create a national history that tries to highlight its heterogeneity and its complexity. So there's this attempt to create kind of all of this intimacy and antipathy that you talk about, try to really develop the narrative. Uh, talk about this effort and what happened to it in the 2000s. Right. So so the first effort I'll say that I, I view as very positive came from civil society itself. So um, a lot of young Ukrainian scholars began to explore, first of all, the multi-ethnic dimensions of Ukrainian history, um, began to work work in collaboration with scholars from different areas. I, I point in the article to a, a journal and also the Lviv Center for Urban History were very instrumental in sort of reframing Ukrainian history, saying this isn't just a history of Ukrainians, that this is a history that needs to be something greater. And it's, a, it's also a history in which we need to look at some of these more difficult moments and really analyze them, as well as celebrating this rich tradition of multiculturalism. At the same time, there was a, a countervailing effort 
that I, I and I think a number of others have also connected to the Orange Revolution. So on the one hand, the Orange Revolution can be read as an extension of this really burgeoning, fantastic civil society that we see in Ukraine in the 2000s. The Ukrainian people rose up against these fraudulent elections and said, we're not going to take it anymore. But I think paradoxically, something that we often forget about the Orange Revolution is that its leaders were, were all formed in the Soviet period. And in fact, I think we're deeply Soviet people. And so even as they were struggling to define a future for Ukraine that was distinct from the Soviet experience, uh, the way that they went about cultivating this alternative historical memory actually replicated a lot of this, um, this kind of silencing that we saw in, in earlier Soviet periods. It, um, it revolved around the creation of personality cults as well. So there was an effort by the Orange Revolution government uh, to revive this, um, this cult of Bandera. Um, the, the leader of the, um, the military unit of the, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and all of this kind of agitation that, um, you know, on the one hand, I think was really intended to distinguish Ukraine from Russia, rightfully so, and to, to, um, to, facilitate the emergence of a, of a Ukrainian nation. But I think that these symbols in another way were also very divisive and um, not only brought up this, this difficult history of, of very sad events in World War II, but I think also really alienated um, Ukrainians, primarily in the East and South, but they're everywhere, who identified with this Soviet legacy as something in, in, as more positive. And you also ascribe a role to, to Putin in the development, the reemergence or the, the strengthening of the World War II cult in Russia. How did this impact things in Ukraine after 2004? Absolutely. So I, I think that this this is all over. I mean, and I should also add that the uh, uh, the Yanukovych, the party of regions led by Yanukovych, also got in on this again with Russian backing. So by the mid-2000s, we, we had a full-fledged historical war happening in Ukraine. We had on the one hand these um, you know, wartime nationalist insurgents being hailed as heroes of national liberation. And on the other hand, we had a resurrection by Putin, who was terrified of the Orange Revolution and wanted to prevent it from happening. And then also by Yanukovych, who was very cynically trying to consolidate his own hold of power, both of these sides were working to resurrect this, this Soviet cult of World War II. And so we were really left with dueling cults of the war um, that had great violences and that were mutually unable to, to discuss these more difficult, complicated issues, um, you know, the gray area that, that sort of lay between these two, uh, these two pillars. And what what has happened since the in the last year since the Euromaidan uh, revolution? How has this affected the development of historical narratives? Right. So I see the Euromaidan once more as a as a um, emblematic of this this kind of duality that I'm talking about this intimacy and antipathy. So on the one hand, the Euromaidan once again showed how flourishing Ukrainian civil society it is, how strong it is, um, how much it can accomplish. But I think that that even as this very strong and vibrant civil society that I and I think I should say most people who participated in this had sort of liberal Western looking pluralistic values. But what happened in this Euromaidan movement? 
statement is that the symbols on which these protesters seized were largely the symbols of this nationalist resistance from World War II. So this is Bandera and the OUN. Their flags were omnipresent. Um, you know, the chant glory to Ukraine, which has really permeated this revolution, is a slogan taken from that moment. Um, and, and this did two things, I think. First of all, this it, 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 it took this language. I, I agree with the colleagues who say that the the um, the, this language has to some extent changed. And that clearly none of these people who are chanting glory to Ukraine are promoting ethnic cleansing. Clearly none of them are integral nationalists. That's not the point. But in taking these symbols into this movement that is a peaceful civic movement, I do think that it, it in some ways made this movement less inclusive. But perhaps even more important, when you see these these slogans and these symbols of Bandera bandied about, to many of the people in the Donbass, for example, and to people in Russia, these are symbols that are very inflammatory and very offensive. And they are symbols that, that Putin then was able to take and, and point to very effectively and really use as a propaganda backdrop for, for this campaign of his own you know, alternative truth that he's promoting. So I think once again, an opportunity for dialogue was unfortunately lost with the instrumentalization of these very divisive symbols. And we have you know, now this claim coming from Putin that this means these symbols that the, the Euromaidan has been um, claimed by, by fascists and that therefore this, uh, you know, we need to intervene. Yeah, I think it, and, and maybe to comment on, on more of this, you, you've provided a, a kind of long, uh, term historical context of these kind of dueling nationalisms and dueling historical memories that, uh, that how do they help us really kind of understand the conflict in Ukraine, particularly the reaction perhaps of people in Eastern Ukraine to the use of these symbols back in Kiev and in Western Ukraine? Right. I mean, I think. I think people have gotten very caught up in, in the day-to-day -day details. And, you know, in, I think rightfully in the indignation of what has happened to Ukraine, it's horrible. And nothing justifies, the, nothing justifies this violent insurgency and nothing justifies Russian support for it. But at the same time, I would say that symbols really have meaning. And I think that when we just, you know, either say, well, they've completely changed their meaning, it doesn't mean that anymore, so it's not a problem, or, you know, if perhaps we don't like the meaning of these symbols. Perhaps we don't think they're legitimate, right? Perhaps we think that the Soviet cult of war was a result of brainwashing. All of this is true, but the thing is these symbols still have meanings to, meaning to people. And when over the course of not only years, but decades and generations, when these symbols are constantly manipulated by political elites and political regimes, they become very meaningful and they become something behind which people mobilize. So, you know, I think that if we're to have a, a peaceful solution to this horrible conflict, I think we're going to need to get beyond these dueling symbols. And I think we're going to need to be able to establish some kind of dialogue about these difficult moments of Ukrainian history. Um, and that was, of course, always hard given how difficult these moments were and unfortunately it's now I think harder than it's ever been. That was Faith Hillis, Assistant Professor of Russian History at the University of Chicago and author of Children of Rus, Right Bank Ukraine and the Invention of a Russian Nation. I'm Sean Guillory and this is the SRB Podcast. I'll be back after a musical break. <laughs> Прочесть мое письмо, ты уж выбери момент. Сегодня я узнал, что. 
что в следующей субботе Обязан быть на фронте, в повестке прочитал Товарищ президент, я не хочу быть там Стрелять по беднякам я не согласен, нет Не чтоб тебя позлить, я это сообщаю А просто обещаю, я не пойду служить что с детства вижу я, отец мой умирает, И братьев забирают, и детский плач всегда. А мама уж давно отмучилась и в яме, Смеется над червями, смеется над войной. Когда я был в плену, отняли у меня Воспоминания и душу, и жену. Убитые года я в комнате закрою И выберусь на волю я завтра на заре. И буду я бродить по всей стране огромной, Где жарко, где холодной, и людям говорить. My next guest is Andrew Weiss. Andrew is Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research in Washington and Moscow on Russia and Eurasia. His most recent article is Putin the Improviser in the Wall Street Journal. Everyone, it seems, is trying to understand the mind of Vladimir Putin, giving rise to a cottage industry of Putinology. Um, what's your opinion of this emerging emerging canon on Putin? Well, I I'm like everybody else. I think I'm you know doing the same thing. I'm trying to dive in the signs of what Putin is up to and where Russia seeks to drive developments in Ukraine. Um, the problem, I think, is there's so many now new entrants to the field, and there's a pretty funny, uh, pretty acerbic. Uh, correspondent for the Daily Telegraph named Roland Oliphant. And he, whenever someone writes one of these articles about getting inside Putin's head, he always tweets something very nasty and very sort of snarky. Um, and so it was, if anything, seeing those tweets that led to my focusing on this issue and my, my recent piece. And, and it's, it, it is interesting because, like, when you search for Putin in news reports, he, he's often referred to as a master strategist or a chess master or a brilliant tactician. And, and these, of course, give the impression that Putin has a master plan for what he's doing in Ukraine. But uh, you have a different opinion. And, and, and what is your opinion of these ideas of Putin as a master tactician? I think it's always very comforting uh, for people to believe that, you know, foreign policy making in any country has, you know, some big overarching strategy. And you, you hear this in our society all the time when people go after particularly President Obama, where they say, you know, he doesn't have a Kissinger and he's no Brzezinski. And, I mean, this is, this is a common uh, critique in uh, sort of the popular press and also, I'd say, in some of the academic di uh, uh, discussion. Um, with Putin, I think what everybody is sort of grasping at is, what is this all about? And, you know, the Russians clearly don't state their goals. They don't articulate a uh, strategic uh, purpose here. They just sort of say, you know, Ukraine's been ambushed by a coup d'etat. Um, and there's all this, you know, nefarious Western agenda that's driving European policy. It's driving Ukrainian policy. Um, and it all sort of 
comes or emanates out of the U.S. And it doesn't even come out of the White House. It comes out of our deep state and the Russian perception that, you know, even if Mr. Obama means well and is, a, is, a, is, is generally positively inclined toward Russia, it doesn't really matter because there are these dark forces in the United States that, that really call the shots. Um, that's not very easy for people, I think, in the normal Western policy universe and sort of concerned citizen universe to grasp. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to most people because most of us know that's not true. Um, but also it doesn't really explain what does Russia want. And when you talk to most Russians, it's not clear that you can find a good answer to that. And so I think it does fall back to it's a highly centralized uh, political system at the moment where Vladimir Putin basically dictates a lot of what happens, not all of it, doesn't by any stretch control everything. Um, but most people don't get a chance to talk to him. And so that's where we end up back with the original question you asked, which is, why is everyone spending all this time trying to div in uh, Vladimir Putin's goals? Mm -hmm. So you don't. So you don't think that he's representing a larger um, kind of elite mentality within Russia, or is this kind of a personal? You mentioned that the, the politics of the Kremlin is incredibly personalized, and, and of course it is. But but how much can we can we try to figure out how much is this is Putin personally, or him as a representative of a kind of wider elite mentality? I'm sure it's a combination of both. Um, and, you know, we've now had 15 years of Putinism. We've had a huge number of people who've made their careers in this new environment and where the values and uh, <clears throat> the signals that have been sent all, you know, do sort of militate in the direction that we were just talking about. So, you know, it plays on, uh, I think, also very fertile ground in the sense that, you know, the Russian elite both was very happy to get off their knees. We're very happy to sort of nur nurture sort of sense of resentment about the way Russia was, was treated in the 1990s. They, they've, you know, welcomed uh, Putin as someone who's, you know, uh, put Russia in a, a stronger place internationally and who's provided some semblance of order inside the country as a whole. Um, all of those have big caveats around them. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt that he's, a, he's tapped into something. The real question is, uh, now that stuff looks so unpredictable and there's so much danger of unintended effects of what has been unleashed here, um, does that give anyone pause or does that make the Russian elite basically, uh, uh, you know, stay in, stay in strict political alignment with Putin? My sense is that, you know, I'm sort of getting ahead of us in this part of the discussion, but I think you know, there's no, there are very few brave people who are going to get out of a, get out of line. And you know, even if you look at 2011, 2012, you know, there were no high-profile defectors from the regime uh, in in the Bolotnaya era. Uh, there were a lot of you know urbanized, affluent people who uh, expressed their this uh, distrust and, and unhappiness with the status quo. But but you certainly didn't see senior representatives of the system uh, absenting themselves or taking themselves out of jobs. Um, you know, most people are sort of are, are either in a position where they can't quickly exit or the downsides are too severe. Do you think that this has become more severe to do this since Putin has returned to the Kremlin? I don't know. I, I think that most people, you know, a, you know, uh, you know, people know that this is their country. And I don't think that many Russians are just going to pack up and leave, particularly those who populate the security services or the the major government posts. It's not like they're going to go get jobs uh, 
working at a bank or, uh, you know, uh, moving to Spain, um, you know, those, you know, not all those people are as wealthy as the crowd that came before them who were, you know, much more uh, able to basically, you know, in the Yeltsin era kind of, you know, do their thing and then get out. Um, you know, I assume most people have been wanting to be part of the system because they wanted to participate in the benefits, and they also wanted to participate in the, the greater project of building a more powerful Russia. Now, you recently uh, argued that Putin is mostly improvising in eastern Ukraine. What, what gives you that impression? Well, I, I haven't seen much evidence to the contrary. If, um, you know, if, if this was anyone's idea of a great plan, um, you know, I'd certainly say this, this looks like a disaster. This has been a disaster for Russia. It's been a disaster for Mr. Putin personally. It's been, a, above all else, a disaster for Ukraine. Um, and every step of the way, uh, the Russians seem to be coming up with, you know, hey, let's try this. Let's see if it works. And so, I mean, the, the, I think the most vivid example of this would be uh, the move against Crimea, where you had what seemed to be a very spur-of-the-moment, pressurized decision the weekend after Yanukovych fled, where, you know, suddenly you had the little green man. Or actually, first you didn't have the little green man. You had the seizure of the buildings. You had the election of the new popular mayor of, uh, of Sevastopol. Um, and then only within, I don't know, I can't remember the exact chronology, but, you know, within a couple of days, you had the seizure of major communication points. Um, and then eventually the little green men. Um, that was pre- improvised in the sense that I don't think, you know, Vladimir Putin went to sleep on New Year's Eve or, at the Olympic opening ceremonies or closing ceremonies, thinking by the end of February, I'm going to own Crimea again. Uh, so to me, that seems like a pretty obvious example of what improvisation is. When it goes, when you go further into the history of what happened in Eastern Ukraine and the different trial and error methods that were applied to both stir up public uh, anger and to build popular support for the separatist cause, all that stuff did work. And so attempts to have mass rallies. The first attempt was, I think, to convene a group of elected officials in uh, Kharkiv, if I'm not mistaken, the weekend of Yanukovych's departure. Um, All of these things kind of didn't work. And, you know, they clearly had some mark of the Russian government behind them. They also, I think, to an underappreciated extent, had the mark of the Yanukovych uh, network behind them. And so for the first couple months, I'd say uh, it was clear that people who were doing a lot of the funding, a lot of the organizing, and providing a lot of the, the, the military backbone were actually part of the Yanukovych uh, structures. And the most you know vivid examples of that were the Berkut um, and the SBU and uh, uh, other government units that defected in the, the immediate aftermath of Maidan. Do you think that this kind of uh, – what, what has happened to these Yanukovych people? Do you think they're, they're still operating or they've kind of receded into the background? That's a mystery to me. I think they're still around. And I think that uh, you know they've been supplanted in part, though, by a much more heavy-handed uh, amount of Russian government involvement. But the Russian government involvement is – uh, attenuated a bit. It's, you know, trainers, it's commanders, it's the provision of this significant amount of heavy equipment, you know, like tanks and armored personnel carriers, um, and other advanced weaponry. Um, so in some ways, the Yanukovych people, I think, have been, uh, 
they're still there and they're criminal groups that were obviously part of the Yanukovych era, which are obviously still there and are very active and have their own agendas. But the insurgency and the kind of pulse behind it, I think, has largely now shifted to more of a Moscow-directed separatist effort. Um, and that doesn't mean Moscow has control of it, but it does mean that Moscow, you know, kind of pours gasoline on things and then stuff happens. Yeah, the, the, the role of the, the separatists and, and how much kind of independence that they're, they're operating with is, is been an issue for me and, and I think hasn't been given enough appreciation in terms of like how much does Moscow actually have control over these people? You know, you can hammer out deals with say, you know, Hollande and Merkel, but there is some agency on the ground. Absolutely. I, I agree with you that it's underappreciated. I think that the, um, you know, the best, single resource I could point people to do is the report that Paul Quinn Judge wrote for the International Crisis Group about a month, month and a half ago, which is called um, uh, Ukraine, a Dangerous Winter. And he'd spent about six or seven weeks on the ground in Donbass. And he, you know, he basically comes away with a pretty damning picture where the institutions aren't there. Structures of, uh, you know, what we would consider a Russian kind of puppet state aren't there. It's very different from what you've seen in other, other conflict zones. It's much more a place where, you know, guys with guns call the shots and, um, you know, you never really know where they are on any given day of the week. And that was what was very vivid in the report is that militias just kind of have a life of their own. And um, they obviously have personal parochial interests in terms of, you know, criminal uh, agendas and control over smuggling or other criminal activity. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing we have to remember is that when, when Yanukovych left, essentially the party of regions had the whole kind of vertical structure of power in the East, and that essentially evaporated overnight, leaving a major power vacuum. Exactly. And I mean, yeah, and then I think and then there's the sort of question about sins of omission from Kiev, where they just really did not engage quickly or in a way that might have uh, put people's minds at ease. Uh, in the East. And, you know, there were just these, these remarkable indicators. I can't remember, I think maybe as of even April, not a single member of the transitional government had really ever gone to Donbass. Um, and then there, I, there was a event here the other night where someone pointed out that one of the only events was when, uh, Tymoshenko and Mabuchino flew to the Donetsk airport and they gave a statement at the airport in Ukrainian and then took off. You know, they never really even went downtown to the Donetsk. So I think, you know, we've this pattern of uh, both opportunism, criminalization, Russian mischief, um, and Kiev kind of not really getting ahead of things, you know, really was combustible in the uh, March-April timeframe. And it really set in motion what we have now, which is a giant mess, where even if, you know, magically there was a ceasefire and if magically there was political will to uh, to try to you know bring this conflict down a few notches, I'm not sure it would, it would really actually work. Now this week, um, and I'm assuming you, you saw this, but the the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta published a document outlining a plan for Russian Russia's annexation of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And Novaya Gazeta concludes that quote, although the actual scenario of the Ukrainian drama has changed things a bit. This draft plan is still closely in line with the subsequent actions by Russia's government, which is striking. Uh, what's your opinion of this document, and, and how does this fit into your view that Putin is improvising? 
Well, don't let me not having read the document stand in the way of having an opinion. Um, you know, uh, and I, I'm sure that's uh, you know uh, a rare admission. But I, in all honesty, I think that um, you know documents like this. You know, this do is not a government document. This seems to be something that was sent to or supposedly sent to uh, the Russian presidential administration. Who knows? Who wrote it? Who knows what status it has? I mean, I just think there's this kind of, um, again, going back to what you said about Putin, the grand strategist at the beginning, there's always this hunger to think like, oh, there must be a plan. There must be a document. Um, you know, lots of people write memos and send them to their friends. I mean, it's not, uh, none of this to me looks like the long telegrams uh, from Canon or something. It just, it just, you know, I just don't think that's, that's what we're talking about. I think what, you know, any number of people could have said, I know uh, the fragility of Ukraine really well. I've been, uh, you know, uh, a Russian government official going back and forth. I've been a Russian businessman going back and forth. I am a Russian security service person who has a network of uh, collaborators in Ukraine. And you know, people could have, you know, diagnosed a lot of what ails Ukraine in a lot of good ways for Russia to take advantage of it. So I don't know if that was uh, done in a systematic way. I suspect, given how the Russian government operates, the people built plans and uh, and then dusted them off. But uh, for the most part, this was a pretty ramshackle effort. And if you look back at the role of how people like Yerkin and others were at the vanguard in leading these seizures of uh, government buildings and MVP buildings and SPU buildings around various parts of the East, um, it doesn't look to me, again, like a well-oiled, well-orchestrated effort. And then we had that long standoff, which I don't know if people remember, but when you had you know, the occupied buildings uh, in the sort of spring and life in much of the areas where these occupied buildings were went on as normal. So, you know, it was, it was a pretty contained problem, um, and it just seems that over time, rather than execute according to some perfectly well-calibrated uh, strategy like this thing that Novaya purports to have, um, you know, the Russians just kept ratcheting things up. And, you know, there are a lot of different actors who had the ability to, you know, provide different capabilities from different parts of the Russian government. And, you know, you pour enough stuff into the mix and you have enough motivated people who are willing to operate uh, in a way that's, that's, you know, dangerous and violent and you get, you get the kind of explosion we've had. Now, if Putin is improvising, and I, I do think you make a good argument to kind of consider that, how does that make the crisis in Ukraine even more dangerous? Well, I think it just shows that, you know, when, you know, if you take the most immediate policy debate that people are having in Washington, where there's a big, you know, active discussion about providing some form of uh, lethal military assistance to Ukraine, you got to ask yourself, well, if this is the person we're dealing with, what does that suggest will happen in terms of escalation and countermeasures? And I think the answer for me at the moment is, uh, pretty much anything could be possible. And I would want to be really careful not to assume that just because as some of the advocates of arming Ukraine have suggested that, well, Putin's escalated a whole bunch already. So it's really, you know, that's kind of an academic point at this point. Um, it to me seems kind of wrong. You know, we've seen weird things happen. We've seen the shoot down of a civilian airliner, something no one was expecting. We've seen 
waves of cyber attacks, uh, some of which seem possibly to be attributable to groups emanating from Russia. Um, and then you've seen just the continued provision of enormous amounts uh, enormous amounts of sophisticated heavy weapons uh, to the separatist groups operating in eastern Ukraine. And so I, I assume you've seen it, but you know, when the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine says that the separatists now are better equipped and have more tanks and other types of heavy weapons than a lot of European countries do, that tells you we're in a really different world where, you know, this group of separatists are not just a bunch of miners and tractor drivers like uh, Putin projected during his press conference last week in, in, in Hungary, um, but, but rather we are dealing with something that is a, you know, a snowball that has the ability to cause a lot of harm. And, you know, I really... You know, I just worry that, uh, you know, there's ways to help the Ukrainians militarily. I think that, for example, the kinds of efforts the U.S. is already undertaking where we're basically helping, you know, with some very specific types of things like uh, communications, secure uh, communications, that is, uh, counter-mortar, counter-battery radars, um, anti-sniper technology perhaps would be another area where we could do some things. All that to me seems fine, um, but I certainly wouldn't want to project it as a uh, as a you know perfect response to what's happening because I think there's so much uh, fragility. Ukraine itself is just in a really de- delicate place, and if the Russians choose to keep escalating, um, I'm not sure if the Ukrainians will will be able to sustain that. Now it, it's it's clear that the West is having. Uh, difficulty formulating a policy to deal with Putin. And you you state in your article in the Wall Street Journal that the West is winging it too. In your opinion, what would a comprehensive strategy begin to look like in dealing with Russia? I, I'd start with the first principles, which is that I don't think anyone in the U.S. or European governments expected that we would be still in the middle of this a year after Maidan. I think, you know, the initial shock was, wow, uh, Yanukovych is using violence. That's really terrible. Um, we should stop that. And so there was a diplomatic mission to try to kind of come up with a solution to keep the duly elected president of Ukraine uh, in power while the he and the opposition uh, basically submitted the, their, uh, their agendas to some form of popular election. And, you know, obviously that didn't work. Yanukovych got scared and just took off in the middle of the night. Um, but at that point, I think it was for the U.S. kind of a, you know, no one really know what to do uh, kind of situation. And then you had the annexation of Crimea, which seems to have really rattled people and made people extremely scared for good reason. Um, you had uh, at that point a sort of, I don't know, effort to sort of focus on sanctions because that was probably the easiest thing to do. Uh, all the other stuff was far more dangerous and costly, like providing military assistance or making some kind of uh, uh, statement that if uh, the Russian government didn't cease and desist, that it was risking possible direct military competition in the United States. Clearly, no one in the West wanted to go down that road, and so we sort of latched onto sanctions. So it's a long way of answering your question, but I think we've ended up in a world where sanctions and now, to some extent, the debate on military assistance have really taken over as the main animators of Western policy. And, you know, there was a really telling quote, which I would refer people to from uh, 
General Hodges, who's the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe. And General Hodges, about two or three weeks ago on the Saturday Wall Street Journal, gave a long interview, and he said, you know, what do we want to achieve in this part of the world? What is the U.S. ends? What are the U.S. ends in Ukraine? And, you know, how? what's the strategy for achieving them? Um, and then he said, and once you know those things, we will do our classic whole of government approach. And we will, you know, all work together, the different components of national power, to achieve those, those, those desired end states. I haven't heard anyone articulate that yet from any Western government. I've seen a lot of sort of generic talk about, you know, we want a Ukraine that gets to, you know, have forums, and gets to be part of the West. And we want to, you know, basically hold Russia accountable for all of its terrible actions here and punish Russia um, and deter it from, from uh, going down that road again. But that, that to me, still looks like a pretty flimsy uh, policy framework. And I think, you know, we're going to have a big mess on our hands dealing with this kind of uh, Russian behavior for the foreseeable future. It's not going to go away. Um, and we've now got a, a much more adversarial uh, competitive relationship with the Russians in nearly all areas. Um, very few, if any, areas where we work together. Um, you know, there are a handful of exceptions to that. Um, and so far, Vladimir Putin keeps showing us that he's willing to take a lot of risks and do a lot of dangerous things. Um, and we clearly aren't. Um, so, you know, we're all about kind of trying to avoid risks and reduce dangers. And he seems to kind of get that. And his response is to go really go straight in that direction. That was Andrew Weiss, vice president for studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research in Washington and Moscow on, your, on Russia and Eurasia. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye. Моя морозичка, моя ты куколка, моя морозичка, моя ты душенька, моя морозичка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.